You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a message from Cyberbit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need Cyberbit. Cyberbit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills. All using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. Cyberbit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live-fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. SHA-1 is broken for real. Grizzly step threat actors seem to have a lot in common with the Carbonek gang. Notes on Distrack, also known as Shamoon. There's a Bitcoin exchange hit by DDoS. Linux patches an old vulnerability. Reuters says Symantec was in talks to buy FireEye, but the companies backed away from a deal. An arrest in the Deutsche Telekom hack. And what the vulnerability researchers found when they looked at connected cars. I'm Dave Bittner in Baltimore with your CyberWire summary for Friday, February 24th, 2017. Every cryptographer who's been telling people to abandon SHA-1 can feel vindicated this week. Google announced the first successful collision attack against the algorithm. In the unlikely event you're still using SHA-1, well, please move to something better. TrueStar looks at additional information on Grizzly Step the U.S. Department of Homeland Security has released. They've found that its operators, by consensus Russian intelligence services, have much in common with the Carbonac gang, including not only code, but also command and control infrastructure. This isn't to say that the Russian government wasn't behind the Grizzly Step operations, but it does suggest again the complexity of attribution. See, for example, NSA Director Rogers' recent comments on this attribution. Essentially, sure, the Russians went to work during our election. The Russian organs have long made effective use of criminal organizations, and this week Moscow revealed that its investment in cyber warfare and information operations has been larger than many defense intellectuals suspected. The level of effort deployed in information operations has especially raised eyebrows. Some say it exceeds even the propaganda campaigns the Soviet Union mounted at the height of the Cold War. Bitfinex, a major Bitcoin exchange, was hit earlier this week by a significant denial-of-service attack. The disruption occurred on Tuesday, as Bitcoin's value was reaching new highs. There's been a pattern of such disruption when Bitcoin speculation is hot, and various black hats have said they've been hired to organize DDoS against larger exchanges, but no one seems quite sure of the motive. Bleeping Computer, for example, says it's an urban myth that smaller trading platforms hire digital button men to make their bigger rivals unavailable to drive trades their way. In patch news, the Linux project closes an 11-year-old vulnerability. A Google intern, Andrei Konovalov, discovered and disclosed it. He'll release a proof-of-concept exploit showing how an attacker could gain root access probably next week after people have an opportunity to patch. 
Many, perhaps most analysts, expect to see a round of consolidation in the security sector over the next couple of years, but it's not arriving all at once. Yesterday, according to Reuters, parties familiar with the negotiations confirmed that about six months ago Symantec had been in preliminary talks to acquire FireEye. Those negotiations came to nothing. This particular acquisition is now said to be off the table. A British subject has been arrested for last year's Deutsche Telekom hack. UK police collared the unnamed gentleman in London, executing a German warrant. The suspect is being extradited to Germany, where he'll stand trial for allegedly attempting to compromise Deutsche Telekom's service to recruit devices into a Mirai botnet. And finally, there was a fair bit of talk concerning automobile cybersecurity last week at RSA. We found the research particularly interesting when it touched on the risks associated with the increasingly connected and autonomous car, which you might think of as another big, moving thing in the Internet of Things. Kaspersky looked into the security of Android apps used by seven car manufacturers. Three of the apps unlocked the doors. The other four not only unlocked the doors, but started the engine, too. This has inevitably been covered with screamer headlines saying car thieves can hack your car. It's not quite that bad, but the apps are vulnerable, and their security, while more than zero, is still penetrable. The researchers singled out two particularly meretricious design practices they say are accidents waiting to happen using either SMS messages or voice commands to control a car. IBM's X-Force also got into the act. They've determined that a lot of these convenient apps, like the ones that let you honk your horn to find your car in the crowded lot at Walmart, well, those apps continue to work, even after you've sold your car. We leave the security issues of this as an exercise for the listener, particularly those listeners in the market for a pre-owned ride. So driver beware, especially if you buy your cars used. What would it take to get you into a compromised device today? This one has just one owner. A little old lady from Pasadena who didn't do anything with her onboard systems except click every link in the email she read on her tethered, unpatched Android phone. We mean, of course, Pasadena, California. The little old ladies of Pasadena, Maryland generally have mad hacking skills, but come to think of it, that might be a problem in its own right. One owner only. She just drove it to church on Sundays. Her grandkids said she did like to compile a lot of Python from the CAN bus. Whatever that is. I think it's some kind of long sugar cookie. Did we mention that we finance? Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use with zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire.
The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. And joining me once again is Dr. Charles Clancy. He's the director of the Hume Center for National Security and Technology at Virginia Tech. Uh, Dr. Clancy, welcome back. Um, we wanted to touch base today about um, this uh, this notion, this push to have election infrastructure categorized as critical infrastructure. What can you tell us about this? Yeah, so, so right after the uh, 2016 presidential elections uh, and, and the uh, controversy associated with potential Russian hacking uh, or so-called hacking of that election, um, the Department of Homeland Security decided to announce the, the designation of election infrastructure as uh, one of the segments of critical infrastructure, uh, which is kind of a really interesting interesting outcome. Uh, so I think this is, is an opportunity for uh, a potential investment in cybersecurity uh, resources for example, in, in R&D resources from DHS, uh, to look at how we might design more secure election infrastructure. Um, but it's been interesting that over, over the last couple of weeks, there's been a lot of pushback from uh, states in particular who feel as though uh, the this designation will somehow interfere with their ability to uh, kind of deploy and operate the election infrastructure uh, that they have right now. So it's, it's kind of an interesting debate. I think um, one issue with it is that uh, many of the other critical infrastructure sectors that are designated by DHS do not have federal jurisdiction. For example, the telecommunications infrastructure is, is perhaps regulated uh, by the FCC, but not operated by the government. So uh, I, I don't know that I quite agree with the state's uh, opinion that it's it's uh, federal overreach in terms of, of such a designation. Um, on the other hand, I don't know that it really would have made any difference uh, in the most recent election, given the sort of alleged attacks against our uh, election process had nothing to do with the voting uh, infrastructure itself, but rather the, the perception of the voters as they walked into the ballot booth. Many people look at the way that our election system is distributed among the states and the amount of control that the states have as actually being a feature of the system that makes it more resistant to a, a broad-based hacking. Uh, indeed, yeah. There's that, that was, of course, one of the claims that the states made in their pushback against the, uh, the DHS finding that, that this should be critical infrastructure was that it's already a very distributed process uh, that doesn't rely heavily on internet infrastructure, but rather uh, local jurisdictions making phone calls with election counts uh, sort of upstream to uh, uh, to, to state uh, voting authorities. So uh, as long as there's, uh, I guess, strong authentication in those processes, we'll be fine. But uh, it'll be interesting, as we see in many technology sectors, the push to modernize involves uh, more and more um, automation and reliance on internet-connected infrastructure. So we'll have to see as voting technology matures and states adopt uh, more sophisticated techniques whether or not that impacts the overall system's uh, security posture. All right, Dr. Charles Clancy, thanks for joining us. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, 
Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. My guest today is Jason Porter. He's vice president of AT&T Security Solutions, where he's leading a team that's taking part in a new IoT cybersecurity alliance. In addition to AT&T, the alliance includes IBM, Palo Alto Networks, Symantec, and Trustonic. We know that it takes a community to solve, you know, really important challenges like securing IoT. Uh, we need the best of breed in uh, when it comes to areas like managing devices and endpoints. We need leaders in uh, securing data and applications. We need people uh, with a history of, of managing connectivity and, and understanding threats and how to manage those. And so we formed this alliance to go, over, go after this challenge uh, together as a community. So take me through what are some of the goals that you're hoping to achieve with the alliance? Yeah, absolutely. Our, our, as an alliance team, we, we are really focused on education, trying to understand really what are the most problematic issues facing IoT security and educating uh, the industry and uh, customers on what can be done to make IoT more secure, uh, what those challenges are and how we might solve them. Uh, we also want to influence over time through that education standards, policy, uh, you know, regulations potentially ultimately that, that help to make IoT security uh, the forefront and, and standard in deployments. And then we also obviously, where appropriate, will come up with solutions that really solve IoT security. Um, and, and we're looking at it largely from a vertical viewpoint. Uh, take industrial IoT, that is very different than, say, connected car or wearables. So each community has different challenges, different attack vectors, a, a different uh, attack surface area that we've got to be able to understand and communicate uh, those challenges, communicate solutions, and even potentially develop solutions for. So uh, take me through the process of uh, how the group is planning to work together. Yeah, so we worked very much like our foundries. Uh, we took the model after our uh, AT&T foundry model. So at the foundries, we bring uh, a collection of, you know, really talented folks together uh, to work on solving problems. And so in this situation, we're bringing together a targeted community uh, and we'll get together and bring in customers 
who have real needs and issues and between that community understand what are the you know highest priority items that we need to go solve for and and really work collectively in sort of uh, in agile development terms it's like a scrum team working together to go develop uh, you know to go solve a problem and from the outside for the, those of us you know keeping tabs on what you all are up to will there be will you be publishing how, how do we uh, how do we uh, track your progress yeah, absolutely. So we we do have milestones. We haven't published our milestones, obviously, but you can expect to hear from us. Uh, we will be publishing results. We will be communicating research so that it's really there for the broader industry's benefit. And uh, and obviously, you'll start to hear more about our next steps, uh, whether it's moving towards standards or solutions, uh, you'll continue to hear a steady uh, drumbeat of that. You'll also hear about us expanding the alliance because as we continue to move forward, we expect that we will need to bring in more uh, members who can help us, uh, you know, fill gaps and, and solve special challenges uh, take defibrillators in in uh, healthcare or insulin pumps or oil rigs. Right, um, we're definitely going to need to expand our expertise in these other areas as we as we continue to solve and tackle new challenges. You know, looking at the list of, um, of participants uh, in the alliance, um, it strikes me that you know there are areas where some of you uh, are probably you know healthy competitors with each other. Um, why do you think it's important uh, for organizations to join together, you know, as a community to try to to tackle these big problems? Yeah, this is one of those areas that really it's beyond competition. We've got to go solve industry problems for our economy. Uh, for in customers, we really need to not be encumbered by traditional competitive lines and, and really go solve problems. And that's why we've, you know, collected, as you mentioned, some, some might view some of the uh, participants as competitors, but in this environment, we're all committed to go solve challenges that we think raise the collective boat or or raise the opportunity for the industry as a whole, um, protecting uh, financial integrity and, and even physical uh, safety uh, in, in many cases. Not every company can invest at the levels of the alliance team members to go and, and, and tackle cybersecurity uh, at this scale. And so we really need to help support companies that maybe don't have those resources, don't have data scientists and threat platforms and multiple SOCs and analysts. And so really it's an obligation of those who do to participate in these kinds of alliances to, uh, to help protect maybe those with more limited resources. That's Jason Porter. He's Vice President of Security Solutions at AT&T. And that's the CyberWire. 
We are proudly produced in Maryland by our talented team of editors and producers. I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. Thank you.